Alrighty. Questions or thoughts or missed blanks from this morning? We'll start with missed blanks. Any, anybody got any missing blanks? Were they all pretty clearly pulled out? Okay. Got it. And I promise you, I will never, never, never do a even remotely Trumpish impersonation in a sermon again. What? What'd you say, Zeb? It's on. The, it's on the tape. You could. You could cite back and send me a link to this podcast. I'm like, there it is. So it's. It's. It stands recorded. Okay. Okay. I wasn't mocking him. No, when you adopt the tropes of your leaders, just ask the Spanish who, we were talking about this yesterday, right? Do you know that the pronunciation of Spanish words changed because of a king with a lisp? They wanted to, they wanted to adopt his way of speaking. That's all I'm doing. It's my story and I'm sticking to it, Matthew. Okay. Um, what? Form of flattery. That's right. That's absolutely right. That's right. Right. No, where did that come from? Okay. All right. Yes. All right. We're going to move on now to questions from this morning's message. Um, we can just start recording here. Um, okay. Yeah. What they have heard. What they have heard. Glory. Glory. You're welcome. Okay. Well, and let's deal with it half by half. Okay. Bridget. Um, so addressing the world hating us, I was kind of thinking about like the balance of that, of having a good reputation with mm. believers. Mm. And um, like the verse I was thinking of, you're talking about let me look it up I know I know what you're talking about it's uh, it's in I think first or second Timothy um, yeah well no and you're not you're not qualified to be an overseer or or a leader in the church without a good reputation go to acts 5 I'll find your passage first acts 5 is where I see the best balance of this but um Peace. Oh, man. Nope. Okay. Live all men. And nope. Where is it? I thought I could find it. First um, Timothy 2. Oh. First Timothy 2, 1 to 3. Let's, let's test this out. Um, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Okay. Romans 12.18 says what? Yes. So here's the tension. Um... There's a book that I lent to somebody this week called The Surprising Offense of God's Love. And it's Jonathan Lehman wrote it. 
And his thesis is that there should always be in the Christian witness, just as there was with Christ, aspects that are appealing and aspects that are, are, are offensive. Um, and so there should be this sort of tug and pull, and push and pull um, aspect going on. There's a sense in which if our unbelieving neighbors knew what we truly believed, they should be unsettled. Right, I mean, there's a real sense, and and with the current ethics today, if if our unbelieving neighbors knew what we believe, they'd probably think we're guilty of hate crimes and things. So I think that becomes clear. Yet, yet, um, they should find us um, peaceable, kind, gentle. I'll, I'll tell you my. Well, let's look at Acts five, and I'll tell you my favorite story um, about Simpson and one of our Simpson grads. So in Acts five. Ananias and Sapphira get struck dead for, for taking credit for more than they did. They said they gave up. I mean, think about it. They got struck dead for saying, here's all the money from the sale of our property when it's, here's some of the money from the sale of our property. Um, and then we read, starting in, so look at verse, um, pick it up in verse 10. Immediately she fell down in the street. So was picking it from her death, Sapphira's death. Um, there's a name, dear, Sapphira. Okay. Um, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were done regularly among the peoples by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now look at 13 and 14. None of the rest dared join them. I wonder why. Well, you're... No, to join to these people is there's a threat external and an internal threat. The external threat is, you know, they, they killed Jesus. Christianity is not popular among the Jewish leaders. And you could get killed just for being a hypocrite. So none of the rest dared, dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. Now somehow, the people thought well of them. Their witness was good, even as they're like, oh, dude, you do not want to go there. You could get killed. The, you know, the, the, the Sanhedrin could show up and grab you. The Romans could show up and grab you. Or you just might get struck dead in the middle of the worship service. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. I mean, it's, it's an amazing verse. It's the exact opposite of what we'd expect would happen. You know, the whole seeker-sensitive model is, you know, this is the anti-seeker-sensitive passage. You know, there's church discipline taking place. People are getting struck dead. And the, the outside community is hearing about it. They're like, oh, no. But they're still held in high esteem. They don't view them as a bunch of legalistic jerks. And in that context, people are getting saved. So here's, here's the story. I, I won't reveal the person, but one of our Simpson grads was in the um, was in the cafeteria, the coffee, coffee shop, I think, coffee shop, and she was accidentally, I think, overhearing a conversation between um, one of the professors and one of the uh, student life people, and um, they were talking about our church. This is back when when we probably had about five or six or seven people going to Simpson who were coming here. Most of those people aren't graduated. We had, we had about a three or four year open, really wide open door at Simpson that is largely closed. Other people are working, doing ministry there. And what they were saying was, we believe such terrible things, it's really, it's really despicable how nice we are. 
by which they meant that we probably, I think in their view, that we probably dupe and trick naive Simpson students into believing the wicked things we believe because of how loving and kind we are. But I thought, man, I would put that on a t-shirt. Like, come to Martinsdale Community Church, we believe terrific things, but man, they love, no, but that's, I wouldn't put on a t-shirt, that wouldn't, that really wouldn't look good. But that's exactly, no, but that's exactly the report we should get. We, what they believe, we detest, but man, are they kind and loving and generous and, and patient. Like, that's, that's the tension. So yeah, when, when, when they try to do Caesar worship and the Christians just won't do it, that's viewed as sedition and treason. I mean, so in the Roman, as far as we understand it, in the Roman economy, they basically, there's been different views of how conquerors deal with peoples and their religions. Um, the Babylonians, their answer was to remove the people from the land. Usually there's a, there's, a, there's a triumvirate. There's the people, the land, and the God, and they usually go together. So the Babylonians would remove the people from the land, mix people around in the hopes of breaking that hold of your God which is one of the reasons why it's such a big deal that the Jews were excluded from emperor worship. So in the Romans, they just take other people's gods. That's why a lot of the Greek gods have Roman names, because Romans were like, we discovered these, <laughs> like they're our gods now. And so Apollo becomes Jupiter, right? Apollo, Zeus becomes Jupiter. They're our resident expert, thank you. Um, so the Jews were excluded from that. The Jews, because they were so um, fanatical about monotheism, they, they, they were given a, a pass, but everyone else had to usher in the pantheon. It's also the reasons why the Jews were looked down upon. So when you lost a battle, the thought was, well, somebody somewhere must have got Zeus mad, Apollo mad. And so one of the things they would check when there was crop failure, when there was uh, military failure, was... Are we letting down the worship of, of the gods? Uh, there's even evidence in the history of about the second or third century. Uh, was it, I think, what's his name? Something the apostate. He's a Roman emperor after Constantine. I want to say Justin the apostate. Who's the guy who's called the apostate? Okay. Julian the apostate. Thank you, Justin Julian. Because his whole thing was Rome's in decline because we abandoned the pagan worship. We've got to go back to it. So, there's, so the reason why I'm saying that is there's this connection between the people worshiping the gods and our success. So here's this group who won't. Here's this group who won't even recognize Caesar as God. So the way they tied all these different religions together is as long as you can recognize Caesar as a god, you can worship your section of the pantheon, the gods you're culturally comfortable with, and you can worship the gods you're culturally comfortable with, but we all recognize at least one common god, and that's Caesar. And the Christians were like, no, no, we don't. And so they were viewed as treasonous. Um, uh, they, they hate all mankind. That's the type of charge laid at their feet. And so if your crops are failing and people are starving and you've been told it's because of the Christians, because the gods of the harvest are mad because of the Christians, you're really going to have a beef with those Christians if you believe that. Even yet in that context, so it's, that's the context of the outside stress and persecution. And Paul is saying, as much as you can, though, be nice, be kind, have a good reputation. And so we get this, go to, go to First Peter. Peter is dealing with this exact same tension in, um, in the context of suffering, even. Um, I alluded to this passage in the message, but... Um, so, ooh, start in chapter 1. I'm going to jump through a couple of passages in First Peter. But chapter 1. Um, verse 6. 
In this you rejoice. The in this being, you have this inheritance, this unfading, kept imperishable in heaven, guarded for you. You've got this great treasure. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, there's how persevering in the suffering confirms their salvation. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that though it perishes, but um, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the glory inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Um, so now jump ahead to chapter 2, where Paul says this in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, there, there right there is the tension. They're going to call you evildoers because of your form of your worship. They're going to call you evildoers because, in their case, you refuse to recognize the pantheon, therefore you're letting Rome down. They're going to call us evildoers because we're bigoted, hate people, whatever. And yet, they should see our good deeds, and that should, be, that should set up a conflict. They, they should have a hard time with that resonating because, man, but I know them. And they're loving and they're kind and they're generous, but there should be this, this tension. Um, we talk about how even like now, it's, uh, it's Christians, Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount, love your neighbor as yourself, turn you to the cheek. Our culture loves that, thinks that's great. Culture is not such a huge fan of Paul's sexual ethics. Go to the Middle East, it's exactly the opposite. They're all, they're all just fine with that. Um, it's the turning of the cheek in an honor culture that's unacceptable. No, you, you fight, for, you, you avenge, you, you, you right wrongs to get your honor back for your family. We talk about turning the other cheek. That's shameful. You don't accept shame, right? So that's, that's, that's an attempt of an answer, but that's the type of tension. But that tension is present even here. Peter's expecting them to be spoken evil of even as they're doing good. That's, that's, so I guess the notion of a good reputation would be those people who actually know you. Are the things they're saying evil about you just about the things you believe? Or are they like, no, you don't keep your word, you're stingy, you're, you know, what, what type of evil are they speaking against you? Like, this is the most generous, kind, patient, loving, bigot I know. Like, awesome, right? I mean, if, I don't, I think you know what I mean when I say awesome, by the current standards of, of the culture, if that's what they mean. Anything further with that? Oh, Jamie in the back. Yeah, yeah. Well, for, first of all, the, the defense of the faith is linked in Peter to give an account to those who ask you. So always be ready to give an answer for the faith. That's really, so part of what I was talking about with George, was it last week we were talking about the sword and the shield, apologetics and evangelism? So, so what Sarah's looking for and what Mitchell's doing about looking for opportunities to speak the gospel, speak the words of life, don't be passive with that. That doesn't mean you've got to speak to necessarily what your thoughts on the Obergefell decision, you know, right? That, it, may, it may intersect. People may ask you, because part of the gospel is a message about the judgment of sin, and so there could be discussion on what is sin. Do you think this is a sin? But, I mean, but you're, you're proclaiming the gospel. On the other hand, there's this defense that's getting ready for things. 
Um, I, and I think basically Facebook does very little in regards to persuading people. I've never met anybody who changed their political view because of something they saw on Facebook. Um, I, I, maybe they're out there. I, don't, I haven't met them. Um, so I, I would not encourage people, whether they're bold or whether they're timid, to do much more on Facebook. I think in most cases probably less would be advisable. But so if I'm hearing you correctly, Sure. It all depends. It's you, it all depends what you're doing. Paul talks about working quietly with your hands. So he's not picturing every. Part of it also is when you're working, you're being paid to work, and your employer may tolerate, may allow a certain discussion among people. But there's a very real sense in which, look, if I'm going to hire somebody, I don't want you to talk. Or I'm your employer. If you don't want to work for me, that's fine. You're allowed to talk only about happy things. I don't want... I mean, an employer's got a reason why he doesn't want his employers, employees in strife and conflict. So I could see why an employer may have a real interest in eliminating divisive topics. We're not talking politics here. We're not talking religion here. We're not talking whatever. You guys can talk about you know, the, the last Jedi or whatever. That's fine. And, and so I could see why an employer might institute that code. And it might not just be because they hate Christianity. It just might be because, hey, when i got five employees arguing with each other, work's not getting done. And, and that's, that's their domain. That's fair enough. They may say just no talking whatsoever. That's fine. Um, and there are other people who are more free. Their employers and their workspaces are more free to share their faith and speak. And praise God for that. Uh, so Paul's not envisioning everywhere the Christians are going they're just constantly speaking. There's a sense in which, you know, get about your work, work with your hands, be quiet, do your work, work hard as unto God, not as a man pleaser. We should be eager and looking for opportunities. I, that'd be the biggest thing I'd say is, if, if you're not even thinking, of, here'd be the questions I try to check myself if I've been faithful. Was I looking for, and did I take advantage of those opportunities God gave me today? And maybe there weren't many opportunities today. Maybe today was a snowy day, I was at the office and I was working on my sermon and I didn't interact with many people. Okay. But if I think to myself, you know, I never once even thought about that, I'm guessing I wasn't terribly faithful. But you don't, it goes back to you don't like accidentally flow into faithfulness. It doesn't usually happen that way. So if you're just saying, Lord, give me the wisdom to know when to season my words with salt. That's another New Testament expression. Seasoning your words with salt so I have wisdom to know how to answer every man. Lord, give me that wisdom. It may be that you don't have many opportunities today. But if you're looking for them, I think God's going to give you the wisdom to do it. So my, my normal counsel to someone asking for wisdom is simply get on your radar, make as a regular prayer request, Lord, those opportunities, those places where I ought to speak, I want to speak. Give me, give me the wisdom to identify them and the courage to act on them. And I think if you've got that as your prayer request, things will sort themselves out without like a rubric of, you know, Okay, there's two people present, and it's a level four spiritual priority issue. And okay, 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 yeah. Oh, Lee. Right. And they were friends. I mean, they worked together every day. And the guy would have had plenty 
Why don't you go to church? Why don't you talk to a pastor? Why don't you, mm. you know, try something? So, mm. yeah, we, we just have to be ready and willing. Right. And like you say, ask God to show you and make you willing. Right. No, no, this is, no, absolutely. The biggest challenge I'd give any, everyone here is simply get as part of your prayer um, in the morning and throughout the day. I want to be alert and ready. The, the mentality is this. We're, we're slaves. We're bought by someone else. We're given marching orders. Now, part of those marching orders is, hey, do good, work hard, be at peace. Don't be quarrelsome. Get out there and do the stuff you need to do. Always being ready. Always looking for those opportunities. If you're, if you're alert and looking for them, like I said, I think it's, it's going to take care of itself. Or maybe you're seeing them and you're, there's some fear. Okay, so it's the two. I want to see them and I need the courage and conviction to act on them. But I think beyond that, things normally take care of themselves. I've never met somebody who's alertly looking for opportunities, eager to act on them, and just to keep passing them by. Right? I have not met maybe that person's out there. I haven't met them. Usually it's either lethargy. I get caught up in just... I'm doing the things I want to do because I want to do them. And the things I want to do aren't terribly bad. So, you know, I'll just do them. And you get through the entire day and it's like, oh, yeah, I never even thought about that. Or you see an opportunity and you wimp out. So if, if, you're, if you've got your prayer and your alertness to both the opportunities and acting on them, I think, I think that should do the trick. Um, follow up to that. Anybody, 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 anybody? Okay, then if there are no more questions, I want to go back to Revelation 5. Actually, go to Revelation 4 first. So the book of Revelation, in the first three chapters, we have John on earth, while the Lord, the resurrected Lord, tells him letters to dictate to the churches about the things that are. And then um, John gets caught up to heaven, and then he is telling us what he's seeing, what's going on. And so he gets caught up into heaven at the end, at the beginning of uh, verse chapter 4. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are these two heavenly scenes both of which end in songs of praise to God. The first is praising God simply as being the creator. Um, look at uh, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So you are the sovereign author of all. You are the creator of all, and you're worthy of praise for that. Then, chapter 5 is a praise for God as Savior, um, specifically the Lamb. And we can, sometimes, um, we can sometimes look at the cross as an end in itself. The cross is a means to an end. Let me say that again. The cross is not an end in itself. The cross is a means to an end. What, what I mean by that is there are some especially among the more liberal stripes of Christians, who say the cross was simply God showing that he cared. The cross was just God um, showing that he's on the side of the victim and the underdog. The cross is God um, showing um, his love and concern for us, in which case sort of the cross becomes an end in itself. The cross is where God displays, I love you. 
the end. You know, like, um, or the cross where God says, I'm in there with you. I'm, I'm suffering with you. Or I care for the little person or whatever. We understand the cross is a means to redeem people to get them somewhere. So the cross is a necessary means to a greater end. And so every day, Sunday we sing about the glories of the cross, and rightly so. Don't just stop there, keep going. And I was talking to Carol Hardy this morning. I had probably read, I love this passage in Revelation 5 that Is He Worthy is based off of, and I'd missed the second bit. Notice there's two things in this song that Jesus is praised for. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. So there's Jesus' substitutionary death. He was killed as a ransom for people. We, I think we all get that. I certainly get that. Look at the second thing. Um, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There's more in view there than simply redemption. They're, talk, they're praising him for more than simply you enabled your people to be forgiven. And you fashioned them into a new kingdom, and you raised them to a position of glory and rule. That's all in there, right? Um, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by our blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so part of that is that the way the Son ultimately will be glorified is by making for himself, redeeming for himself a people from every tribe, people, and nation who are fashioned into his bride, the church. And so the son then, to use the imagery of marriage, is glorified in him dying and laying down his life for his bride and purifying and perfecting his bride. And part of the glory of his bride is that she is made up of every tribe, nation, and tongue. The, the diversity, the manifold, that God has done this. He's made a people not out of one nation, not out of one people group, but out of them all. And out of them all, he's fashioned something new. He's, and Jesus paid the price to redeem his bride, and he's made the church into this new people, this new kingdom of priests. And so that ultimately, when Paul talks about putting God's wisdom on display is what we're seeing. We're seeing our glorified, redeemed people, and part of the glory and part of the wisdom is, my goodness, they're made up of every imaginable group of people. That's part of the glory. And what Paul's saying in Ephesians is we can start to model. And it, ultimately, it, it will. When Jesus shows up on a white horse, he will have a multitude with him. There will be his bride, the church, with him, um, unified. But we can start to image and model that now. And that's what Paul's calling on the church to do. So getting a vision for God being glorified, not just in Jesus dying for, we think so individualistically. We think, God, and, and God, Jesus does get glory because he died for me. And Paul can speak that way in First Timothy. He, he died and gave himself up for me. But as Americans, we tend to think only individually. And here, there's this corporate aspect where Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We can also speak how Christ died for his bride, the church. Now we're looking corporately. And the glory of that picture is every tribe, nation, tongue, and people are present in this new humanity. That's, that's the part I think we can sometimes minimize. Any, any thoughts on that? Or? Yeah, I think that's a good 
that God will be more glorified because his people in heaven come from every tribe and nation and tongue than if, than if they were all Anglos or all Afrikaans or all, you know, um, Korean or whatever. He, he gets more glory because they're from every tribe, nation, and tongue than if they're all just from a couple people groups. Um, Don in the back. No, no, ab- ab- absolutely. We, the Bible deals with salvation both individually and corporately. I'm trying to emphasize some of the corporate because I'm guessing in our balance today, it's heavily, we, we get the individual. Um, and, and so we need to also get the corporate. If you just go corporate, you end up with, well, you, go, you end up with some bad things too. Um, Right. No, and, and I think I think if you want to see both of those in the we got three four minutes. In the two contrasts of chapter two, the two before and afters, the first one is entirely individualistic. You you he made alive. And that doesn't happen as a group activity. That's one by one, person by person. God speaks life and light into their heart. And we were raised with him and we were seated with him and, and so individually we were each one of us made alive in God's time at the right proper time. He made us alive. He brought us to faith. And that's all individualistic. And, and no one can believe for you, as John 1 says, children not born of blood or the will of man, but of God. That's individual. And then we're saved into a corporate reality. And that's the other piece. We're in America, and, and probably because we're moving away from dead big churches where, hey, if you're part of the church, you're good. The assumption is if you can get the visible church to recognize you, and you're good. Um, and there should be some encouragement from the visible people of God recognizing your faith. But especially where the churches became more and more dead, it just became, I'm good because I'm part of this church. And so there was a revival movement. Well, no, 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 no. That's not good enough. You need to trust in Christ. You need to repent of your sin. You need to turn to him in faith. Don't tell me you're part of this church. Tell me you've done that, right? And so the pendulum swings in the other way, especially in the Second Great Awakening, um, where guys like guys like Finney, 
uh, and others. Yes, 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 yes. I'm just, he's the big luminary, the second great awakening. <laughs> yes, sir. But what I mean is they were calling people out of the churches. That's why they're meeting in tents. The whole, theolo- the whole thought was you have unconverted pastors. Your churches are dead. Come out of the churches one by one and come to faith. And that did a lot of harm to the church, but there is some truth to that. The emphasis on, no, you have to do business with God. No one can do it for you. You have to bow the knee to Christ. You have to come to him in faith alone. But that's where all of that comes from is a counterbalance swing to, I'm part of this church. I'm a member in good standing of this church, so I'm good. Maybe, you know. Um, And so then the pendulum swung the other way. So now we've got virtually no concept of corporate identity and there's a bunch of New Testament commands we have a really hard time with if it's just me and Jesus. This is also why just church attendance and stuff for so many is gone. You know, it's just me. What do I need a church for? It's me and Jesus. I can listen to better. You can listen to better sermons than me. You can sing better arranged and performed worship music in your car. What do you need to gather here for? You know, um, and we we lose a vision of the local church, and that's what gets lost in that counterbalance the other way. So we're saved individually in our salvation. We stand and fall before God. The sins of the fathers are not visited. You know, no one, Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins shall die. You don't get, you don't, your salvation is your, an issue of your sin, your belief, your unbelief before God alone. But, close out in Ephesians 4. Um, Ephesians, we're going back to Ephesians. Ephesians 4. Very first place Paul goes with this. Um, verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then he gets individual, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, so he's making on the one hand, there's one church, there's one faith, there's one Lord, there's one Holy Spirit, there's one baptism, and there's all these individual ministers who've been gifted with individual gifts. And so there's a corporate and an individual emphasis. So Paul can speak in the same epistle in 1 Corinthians 3, you, plural, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 6, you and your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So corporately we're a temple, an individual. Yes, it's a bit of both. The, the, the emphasis I'm trying to hit on in Ephesians as we close out Paul's preamble to this prayer is to recognize the privilege and the glory of God that is seen in some of the corporate activities we do. When we pray together, we're praying, we're doing that, we're praying together. When we started this ABF in prayer together, we are together from all of our varied backgrounds as one coming to God. When we take the Lord's Supper like we did last week, together, we're imaging our union with each other and our corporate access to God. We come together to the table. We come together and carry out this, this image. We, we, we give this sign. We, we, we do this right together. And that unity together portrays something. This is why you don't do communion by yourself you know, in your car or at home. It, I suppose you could, but it'd be weird. You, you shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't. Um, but uh, that's, there's, there's horizontal realities in play as well that Pastor Daniel I mentioned last week. It's not the cup that we share a fellowship of the blood of Christ because we are one body, there is one, because there's one body, there's one, because there's one loaf, we are one body. 
the fact that we're all eating from the same source says something not only about Christ and his death, but also about us. Anyway, we're at time. God bless, God speed, and see you all next week.